0: Welcome in to another episode of the Retirement Pathfinder with Barbara Lane and Phil Guskey of Pathfinder Wealth Management. I am Ben George, and today we're going to think critically about some of the uh, the advice we hear from Dave Ramsey, who's very popular and is, is good at what he does, but just like we always say with any financial advice you get, you want to be critical of it and, and, and really investigate and research it more to see if it fits you. So we'll talk about some of his advice and see if it really makes sense and should you be wary of some of the things that he kind of gives to everybody kind of a blanket advice to everybody he works with. And before we do that, I want to kind of get an update from you guys. Uh, you know, are you guys following with this coronavirus and know things are always changing constantly. And now that we kind of, we're moving into the, what, the third month of this whole uh, health crisis and there's more and more research coming out uh, quite a bit and a lot more data that people are tracking. Is that something you've been following?
1: Yeah, Ben, in fact, uh, it to be with you, by the way, I, yeah. I, I, I we've always enjoyed these podcasts and so, uh, yeah i did, I did a little uh, research I, I read a report this morning from the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of chicago and you know now you have to understand that this report is published by academics and uh and so I had to uh find somebody who could kind of interpret <laughs> this report for me a little bit but but what they're saying here is they're they're saying that the covid nineteen virus is also a reallocation shock, which means that what they did is they, they researched and they kind of projected forward one year from now what it would look like in our economy with what's been going on. And so um, the results are the, the findings that they're coming up with in their, their particular uh, analysis is, is a little bit discouraging. But what they're saying is that they're finding that for every three new hires, there's 10 layoffs, which is not surprising. Uh, but they're saying that, and this is what is surprising, they say that they're estimating that 42% of the recent layoffs will result in permanent job losses. In other words, those jobs are going away. Uh, now, they, they say, yeah, they do admit that their evidence is very anecdotal. But, but I would say to that, okay, what's going to happen to those people that are laid off? Are they going to go into hibernation? Are they disappearing? No, they're going to resurface in some other job. Not only that, but, you know, let's say that that particular place closes down. And Barb and I got a report yesterday. One of our favorite restaurants not too far from here that had been open for 31 years uh, has closed down. The lady, after 31 years, uh, is going into bankruptcy. And that, Barb, that was a shock to oh, hear.
2: Oh, actually, Phil, it's been open for 80 years. 80 and years. the current um, owner has had it for 30. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing that um, I was very sad to hear that she had to declare bankruptcy.
1: Yep. And, uh, and so, I mean, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking to hear that happening. And she just basically gave that explanation over, you know, the YouTube and, uh, oh, it was, it was devastating to hear, but, but the question is what's going to happen to her wait staff, the cook staff and everybody else. Well, I'm sure they're going to, they're not going to sit at home. They're going to, at, at some point, they're going to go out there and, and get new jobs and so forth. And this is also possibly an opportunity for somebody else, because as one moves off, somebody else will move in to fit that, that particular uh, place again, and, and it, we do hope that it will open up again, but here 's the other thing they they do say um, at the University of Chicago. they say that unemployment benefit levels exceed workers earnings so here 's the deal: a lot of people don 't have an incentive to go out and seek employment. why because they 're making more money mm-hmm. sitting at home on unemployment, and that is a detriment to an advancing economy, so the government has to do something to put some uh, uh, parameters on that um uh, employee retention there's there's very little in, in place to uh promote employee retention occupational licensing restrictions and regulatory uh, barriers are are uh you know in the way of uh, businesses reforming and so our hope is that I'm I'm the eternal optimist barb you know that yep. you know I'm I'm kind of that way i believe that you know uh, the current administration is going to uh, accelerate the process to where yes we can get back to work again and that uh these restrictions will be reduced so that that we can get up and running again uh you know don't listen to what the uh, the media is saying all the time i mean their their particular stock and trade is drama that's their purpose and, and they're doing a pretty good job <laughs> of it you know so i would say that it's not all gloom and doom we have to consider that uh, uh there's always a side to every coin and i believe that i'm very positive i think that in spite of some of these predictions that uh that the American public is very resilient and they're going to find a way. They're going to find a way to, to uh, get back to it. People that, you know, were born after 1960 haven't experienced something like this. Ben, I think this is the first kind of disaster you've experienced uh, during your lifetime, maybe. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, but I mean, it's, so now, I mean, there is, there is that particular exposure now. And so we have a will to win in America today.
2: You know, it was kind of funny. You were mentioning that, uh, People are. I was actually listening to a lady. She owns her own business, and her employee, employees, or one employee, was mad at her for paying her because she could make more on unemployment. But hmm. um, you know, as you mentioned to that, that that report from University of Chicago does sound rather bleak. But I believe, like you, that I'm optimistic too, and we're we're, we're both entrepreneurial spirits, and so. I think that there's going to be a business, businesses that will uh, come, out of, come out of this uh, mess that we're in and uh, think of opportunities and ideas that we have not thought of because there will be a need. So there'll be, there'll be businesses that will make it and businesses that won't, mm-hmm. which is what it's all about. But I think that uh, in the end, we're going to come out of this very strong.
1: Well, a country boy will survive. Remember that old song? <laughs> so. <laughs> I've heard that one. Yeah. It's a good one, yeah.
2: actually. Easy mm-hmm. to
0: sing along to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with, with that, that innovation will, will, will drive a lot of companies forward and a lot of businesses forward. It's just tough seeing a lot of small businesses that, oh, yeah. you know, so I don't know how it is in, in Rockford specifically, but you see them in a lot of smaller towns that have been around 20, 30 years that are now saying, okay, just can't go on any longer. Once this, right. even once this ends, I don't think we'll come back.
2: Right. They don't have the cash flow. That's, mm-hmm. And that's, that's the sad part.
0: It is indeed. So, well, we wish everybody the best that's out there fighting through this and, and trying to get through the next day. Just take it one step at a time and continue to, to, to find the, the silver lining and take that optimistic approach because we will get through this again and and uh, things will begin to improve hopefully sooner than later. Well, let's get into our main topic today, Barbara and Phil. I want to remind you too, all of our episodes can be found on pathfinderwealth.com. If you haven't subscribed to this show yet, please take a second and do so on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is that you listen, you'll find the retirement pathfinder on that podcasting app. And we'd appreciate if you subscribe. So you'll have the next episode delivered right to you. But today we want to talk about uh, Dave Ramsey a little bit. And he's a very, very popular investment advice. And he gives out a lot of, of good help to people, especially people that are really dealing with debt issues. And And I wanted to bring this to the show because, you know, we always talk about thinking critically with anything in finance. You know, you want to always examine and make sure if it works for you and you want to work with an advisor to make sure that that the ideas that you have work for your retirement plan. So I thought we'd bring some of the ideas and some of the advice that he gives out to his listeners and and his audience and see if we should maybe be a little wary of, of what they say in this kind of one size fits all approach. So, first thing I want to start with is that debt snowball. And if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the debt snowball, it's about, you know, paying down the lowest balance that you have. And then once that's paid off, rolling all that money into the next one and continue that until uh, you pay off all your debt eventually. But is that actually counter to what maybe makes the most fiscal sense? Because that that role behavior takes in our investing lives is, is one we're all really familiar with. And it expands really beyond that debt conversation.
2: Yeah that's very true Ben and uh and and very true that David Ramsey people he has a lot of good advice he people do listen to him a lot of people listen to him and a lot of younger people with lots of debt so he has some very good ideas that way but I want to address saving while paying off debt and and that's actually another question today when it comes to saving for retirement and uh so I'll address that one in the end of this podcast so I'll address this one first. I do agree with Dave Ramsey on this one because I was there at one time with business debt. I had small business loans, lines of credit, and you have business credit cards. Consumer debt is different and something you have to be very careful of because it's easy to give someone a piece of plastic for a purchase only to find out you're going to be paying for it years and years ahead. Number one, I would say the first rule of debt is to have one major credit card. Get rid of the rest and you can actually get rid of them and you can cut these up while you have a balance. Secondly, is to save money in a savings account. I think that's critical. You have to have emergency money for car repairs if there's household items that go out. And the reason may be that you've used credit cards is because of lack of savings. Focus on three months of income, and that's the general rule. Now let's address the debt. Let's say, for example, if you have a credit card with a balance of, these are small balances, by the way, that I'm, I'm talking about here. But so let's say $1,000 and you're paying 15% interest. And then you owe on another credit card $2,000 and you're paying 20% interest. I would pay off the $1,000 balance first because you want to rid yourself of debt. And so any, any showing of reducing that debt and getting rid of it is motivating. And, it has, and it has, now it has a lower balance, so it'll be paid off first. If you go according to conventional wisdom and you have the same dollars, but you pay down the $2,000 first and you get down to a $1,000 balance, well, then you're still going to have two credit cards. Whereas paying the $1,000 first, it's gone, it's done, and and it's paid off, and that's pretty satisfying. But the other thing that you had mentioned too, Ben, is worth talking about, and that's the behavior concern. When you start saving, you're ensuring yourself that you won't let this happen again. And you're getting in the mindset of saving, and that's a confidence booster. So for most people with a lot of credit card debt, it could take years to repay it, meaning 10, 5, 10, more years down the road, you have to pay yourself first. And if you pay off all this credit card debt, let's say you get to the end of it, you have no credit card debt, but now you're starting at ground zero. And all the while you've lost the time value of money. I say save while you're paying down credit card debt. But uh, in my experience, there was, it was satisfying to pay off those, just to pay off the lower, the lower balances first.
1: Yeah, I think it's impossible today to, to do things, uh, travel, you know, rent things without without the benefit of a credit card. I mean, I don't think they'll even want to lend extend credit to you without a credit card. But so, but my particular advice is why you know why even keep a credit card if you can if, if you can do without a credit card, it's it's better that you not. But but if you do have one, it's best to pay them off monthly. You know, I remember my father telling me many many years ago. You know, uh, if you can't pay, you don't go. Uh, you know, so you pay as you go, and if you can't pay, you don't go. So you know, don't try to borrow money. Uh, to go. And I, I know that's part of our economy today. Uh, it's what makes things go around. But uh, but if you do incur uh, that debt, you know, make sure that you get rid of it as quickly as you can. I think Dave Ramsey is just totally on target for what he, he tells us in terms of uh, doing away with the consumer debt.
0: All right. Good to know on the first one. Uh, the second one, the piece of advice that we hear quite often is uh, just invest in mutual funds. Well, Well, what he's, what he often says is, you know, it's really investing is as simple as picking a couple of mutual funds, right? You just divide your money up. You pick between maybe a growth mutual fund, uh, an aggressive one, maybe conservative, international, whatever it is. You just pick a few and then you're all set. Your invest, your investing is on track. Is that flawed advice? Where, where maybe are the holes in that strategy?
1: Oh yeah. It's, um, first of all, I, I want to say, uh, give kind of a testimonial to, to Dave Ramsey and, um. I really admire and respect Dave for what he has done to improve the lives of millions of people. I will actually recommend folks that I know, younger people in particular that uh, have struggled with um, consumer debt, uh, to get his course, uh, listen to him in his course, uh, do what he tells you to do. I don't think my daughter would mind if I said that she she would tell you. She had lots of uh, college debt that she was able to reduce and eliminate because of his course. So um, most of his advice is geared toward the young, and that's important to understand. High school graduates, college graduates, those people just starting out, uh, there is a tendency to accumulate, you know, high interest debt. And, and also he recommends uh, that consumptive lifestyle. In other words, going out and buying things because you can. You know, you're on your own now and you go out and you buy the whatever, you know, because your parents had it. Uh, and there's been other people through the years that have helped me personally before Dave Ramsey has come along. And I think of names like Larry Burkett or Ron Blue. And uh, uh, those people that are listening in probably recognize some of those names. Larry Burkett uh, and Ron Blue have been very uh, visible in the, in the church community in this, in this nation over, over many years. Uh, Larry's passed away now and Ron Blue, I think, is retired. And I do agree with Ramsey on the question of mutual funds. You know, with mutual funds, you have, uh, you know, professional management. Uh, Low expenses, depending on what what kind of fund you're into, and you can invest like a millionaire. You can virtually get the same kind of returns that people with millions of dollars have without having millions of dollars to invest. However, um, one of the things that we have to understand about Dave is that you know he doesn't hold himself out as an investment advisor, and so he's somewhat limited as to the kind of advice uh, he can get. It has to be just general guidance uh, that's incidental to uh, reducing debt. So our position. Uh, is is something that goes like this. You know, whatever you put into the cake, you know, will uh, make a huge difference uh, in the outcome. So you can't just throw things in, in the ingredients of of a cake or a stew, and mix it all around a little of this, a little of that, and see how it comes out. And that's kind of the danger of what Dave says because he doesn't get very precise in terms of of an academic approach, or what we call an evidence-based investing approach. So as an example, we know how large-cap growth works. We know how small-cap value works. We know what kind of potential returns. We know what kind of potential risk they have. So the typical person that comes into our office will have probably the majority of their stock holdings, if it's it's a mutual fund portfolio, the majority will be in large-cap growth. You know, well, yeah. uh, we have found that that is the least productive of all asset classes out there. Always has been, and always will be. Now, it's kind of a kind of a bold statement, but I can show you that at large cap U.S. growth is not really where you want to have your market, your money, for the most part. Only four percent on the average is where you should have uh, your money placed in large cap growth. Well, so when we get together with our clients, we want to be able to construct a portfolio that must must be done in a precise manner, not just having major asset classes in there, but having 19 to 21 different groups that are mathematically balanced. So you are getting the outcome at the end of of what you're looking for. And, And that can be measured very carefully in order to produce that income that you need. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but we don't talk about percentage returns. We talk about what type of income the portfolio is capable of producing.
2: Yeah. You know, I was looking up the first mutual fund and that was created in
1: 1924. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah, it does go back that far. Yep.
2: Yeah. And it used to be good advice when mutual funds were the best way for an investor to invest. Small amount of money, you have great exposure to the entire stock market. But since then, we've evolved. And the first index fund was actually from John Bogle in Vanguard. Mm-hmm. It was uh, back mm-hmm. in 1975. And it was an S&P 500 fund. And he got a lot of negative oh, publicity. Yeah.
1: That was sacrilege.
2: Yeah. They they were calling him un-American. Well, it turns out today that that is the most efficient way to invest. But now, uh, based on academic research, as Phil had mentioned, that we follow in portfolio design, we can design an efficient entire portfolio of index funds, which is much better for the investors. The bottom line is, as Phil had mentioned, it's a recipe approach, right, Phil? Mm -hmm, (laughs) It's a baking, it's a precise approach versus cooking where you're just adding a little of this and a little of that. The bottom line is, no matter what the mix of assets is, that is very true. The mix of assets is important, but it's it's also important uh, to address investor behavior. Mm. People mm. buy and sell too often instead of staying the course. And generally, that happens because they just panic and they don't know what to do. And I'm sure right now, it's obvious in, in what's going on with the coronavirus. People are continually selling. Mm-hmm. I would say seek professional help.
0: Yeah, professional help is important. I mean, especially with the market the way it is, it's like up, it's up two or 3% one day, down three or 4% the next day. Such big swings, more than we're used to. It's easy to panic uh, very quickly. Right. But when you're trying to come up with that recipe, it's best to work with someone like Barbara and Phil. They can actually build that recipe for you to match what you need uh, in retirement. One other thing that I've heard uh, Dave Ramsey say quite a bit when he gives, he gives out advice is, He's kind of implied that you can expect about a twelve percent return on your money if you follow his guidance, and then on the other end of that, he even says that you can plan on spending about eight percent of your money per year in retirement and be fine. And based on some other financial experts that I've listened to and having you know, worked on this podcast with you guys, that seems to go against a lot of what I've heard.
1: Yeah, that that's what Dave used to talk about in times past, and uh, you know, I I even took issue with with him saying that at that time, but. I think today what what Ramsey has done is he's uh, kind of scaled back his returns for mutual funds uh, from 12% down to 7 to 8%, which is more realistic. But that being said, uh, that would be more reflective of a of 100% stock portfolio. And that would be measured over, let's say, a 20 to 30-year period of time. So, So the question is, number one, should he be quoting investment percentage returns? Okay, that's the first question we have to ask ourselves. And number two... Is it appropriate for everybody to have those type of returns? Well, let's say that an investor is getting somewhere between four to five percent on their investments consistently. Uh, it's producing income for them that they need in retirement, and they hear from Dave Ramsey that they should be getting seven to eight percent instead. Uh oh! What's their first thought? I'm underperforming the market. I'm not getting what I should get. Oh, my goodness. Time to bail. Uh, yeah, time to get out of it. It's almost like picking up the latest issue of whatever mag- financial magazine and saying, okay, uh, I'm not doing as well as I can. Here's the thing. Now they're, they're thinking they're underperforming the market, and they may jump into a more aggressive portfolio that they don't need. I mean, it, it might be possible that the portfolio that that's producing the 4 to 5%, is producing all provide, providing all the income that they'll possibly need from that point forward. Well, the danger in in quoting percentages, Ben, is is that he's giving uh, investment return percentages, and people are doing what we call comparative analysis. And there's a real danger in that. It can drive an investor to destroy the plan that they're in, and and they have to think that they've got to take more excessive risk on. And that's part of the problem is that, like we had talked about in previous podcasts, is that uh, people have this casino mentality where they think they've got to put their money into high investment returns or high risk investments that give high returns. And yes, they could really lose a lot of money. Um, They could be in the wrong investment classes. They could be investing in things that, uh, that could go to zero. There's no doubt about that. So they have to be careful. And so at our firm, we don't talk about investment rate returns. We stay away from those because we try to help people understand, number one, calculate how much income they need to live on comfortably in retirement, the income is going to drive the way the portfolio is constructed, okay, not the percentage return. So once we get that number at retirement, that retirement portfolio can be uh, structured in such a way that it'll meet the expected income returns of the client, then they can develop the peace of mind we've talked about uh, as far as an investor.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely. Expenses are going to be the driver of your retirement. And that's what we build our portfolios around. And what I'm going to address right here with this question is that, uh, is the uh, income withdrawal rate because mm. Phil and I do a lot of income planning and we follow a couple of leading experts. And one is Dr. Wade Fowl from the American College of Financial Planning. And the other one is Michael Kitsis. Mm-hmm. He has a master's in financial planning and taxation. Well, Dr. Wade Fowl had conducted a, an extensive study going back to 1926 and looking at 30 year increments up to present time and 30 year increments with the expectation that that's how long you'll be in retirement. And he had discovered that the 4% withdrawal rate was sustainable provided, provided you had 40 to 60% allocated to equity. So stock, you have to stock mutual funds, stock index funds. You have to have growth in your portfolio when you retire. The 4% withdrawal rate was sustainable. Now, I was just reading recently, because Michael Kitsis does a lot of research, and mm. <laughs> if any of our listeners want to want, uh, our, our number crunchers and want to read his information, he'd be a good one to, to follow. According to him, the 4% rule with even a recent study is that that is sustainable. Well, once every 20 to 30 years, we do something bad to our economy. So whether it's a real estate crisis, the financial crisis, right now we've got the coronavirus crisis. But even during the depression of 1929 to 1932, where the stock market lost 85% of its value, if you retired then and used a 4% withdrawal rate, you'd still be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. International withdrawal rate, the same with Australia and Canada. That's provided that you don't have any external global wars. Well, Japan would have had during that time about a half a percent withdrawal rate. Germany, maybe a 1% to 2% withdrawal rate. Now those external wars and things like that that happen, well, then that can break the four percent rule. But the number three and a half to four and a half percent withdrawal rate worked with a simple portfolio of just large stocks and government bonds. But today we have even much greater diversification. We've got, you know, which which Phil talks about as far as the nineteen to twenty-one asset classes, which means it brings even more stability to the results. But here's what's interesting uh, from Michael Kitsis about uh, all of this is that there's a 96% probability that you'll have more than double your starting principal, provided you don't have any real health issues. So in other words, that might be too conservative, but it's just the unknowns. We don't know how long people will live. And if you're married, you've got two lives. So if you think about that, you're doubling your money and you're living off of it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And that was just a recent study done by Michael Kitsis. So the 4% withdrawal rate between 35 to 4.5% withdrawal rate appears to be sustainable.
0: That's very interesting. Uh, there's one more I want to get to that, that you kind of touched on earlier, Barbara, and I want to let you elaborate on a little bit more, but that's cutting, you know, when we talk about the debt, paying off the debt, he talks about cutting retirement savings while you're paying off that debt. And he, you know, his baby steps even outlined, you want to stop contributing to your retirement plans until you get out of debt. I mean, the exception being the mortgage debt, uh, clearly the bigger debt there that everybody, you know, it's okay to maybe to take on a little bit more, but what do you think about this? I mean, you kind of alluded to why this, this might be a problem, but explain that a little bit more why this might be ill-advised.
2: Well, um, I say no, no, and no. <laughs> <laughs> I th- that is the one thing that I do not agree with. So my short, short answer is to not do that. And uh, you know, we could get into the, the loss of time, value of money, and the years that it takes you know, that you're not investing and so forth. But again, David Ramsey generally speaks to a younger crowd, and paying off credit card debt is very important. I would recommend saving for retirement while you're paying off debt. So number one, uh, gets you in the mindset of saving. You're paying yourself. And secondly, you're accomplishing both. You're paying off debt and you're building a retirement. But don't waste time because you'd never get it back. Third, if you have a 401k, oftentimes there's a company match to what you put in, which is usually 3 to 4%. If you put nothing in, then you just threw that money away. I used to have people come in, sometimes I still do, that say, I'm not contributing to my retirement account because my employer isn't. Well, Don't worry if the company that you're working for doesn't contribute. Maybe someday they will, but it's your retirement, so you want to do it for you. And then the next question is, well, how much should you save? So it depends on your household expenses and how much you have in an emergency fund, which, by the way, is the first thing you want to do if you don't have, if you don't have one, and that's at least three months of income, as I'd mentioned. For your retirement account contribution, save at least what the company matches, which is 3 to 4%, and then work up to 10 to 15%. And if you're in your 50s and above, work on maxing out your 401k. You can max it out up to $26,000 a year right now. If the income won't support that, that's okay. Just save. When you retire, you're never going to regret saving too much money. But in the meantime, you can still take those dollars and pay off your debt. And I have a uh, theory of how to pay that debt off if you have multiple credit cards also. You certainly can give me a call. But even if you max out your 401k, you can still save outside of that. As I've mentioned, I'm always about saving and saving, saving or investing, I should say. And we can show you how to save outside of that retirement account in a tax efficient manner also.
1: Yeah. And the, uh, the the last thing I want to add to this uh, uh, particular portion on on analyzing the, the Ramsey recommendations is, again, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to understand the age groups that he's uh, addressing. And, and I'll give you an example why that's important. I had a a client of mine, a couple that uh, went to a, a Ramsey uh, seminar at their church. And they're in their sixties, and they came back and and they said, "Well, we just feel that having a mortgage on our house is totally," uh, and they used the term, you know, not being good stewards uh, or, or you know, sinful. I guess is another way to say it. And I asked them why they said that, and and they said, "Well, you know, we shouldn't have any debt, and we have to understand what debt means. Debt means that you owe more than you own." Well, these folks had lots of money, and they could very easily pay off the mortgage. And their mortgage was only 3% is what they were paying. And I said, well, you have to understand something. I said, Ramsey is addressing these issues to younger people that are really in bondage, okay, to financial debt or consumer debt. And I said, you're not. You can pay this off anytime you want. And if you want to do that, I would encourage you to do it. I'm not going to stop you from doing that. But here's the deal. Right now, you're, you're only paying 3% on your mortgage, but you're making much more than that in your investments." So that's called arbitrage. You're making more than what you owe and you could easily turn around and, and invest that money. So what you want to do is you want to take and and kill off your money machine by putting that money into your mortgage, which is not an income producing asset.
2: Have your money working for you. Yeah.
1: It's like taking your racehorses to the slaughterhouse. Why would you want to do that? Uh, Unless you were absolutely convicted, that's, that's what you should do. And we never want to uh, discourage that. But uh, in this case, uh, from a, from just purely a statistical point of view, it doesn't make sense to, to pay off the mortgage. And uh, they didn't really fall into that age group where they, they would have benefited more by paying off the mortgage. So that would be the only warning I would give in terms of following, uh, following his, his guidance.
2: Yeah. Sometimes it makes sense and and sometimes it doesn't.
1: That's right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I think that's a great point you both make. And, and, and like with anything, right, always consider the audience for whoever you're listening to, Mm -hmm. but also there's going to be some stuff that works for you. There's going to be some stuff that doesn't. So you want to uh, first bounce that off of you guys, right? I mean, you, you probably welcome somebody that says, Hey, I heard so-and-so tell me maybe this is a good idea. What do you think? And you, I'm sure you're happy to, to talk them through that and, and actually we evaluate do. that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. We hear, we hear that regularly and, and we're glad uh, to hear that because there's so much financial information out there and we know they're reading it. So that if they bring that to our attention, it just uh, can start up a good conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, this has been a great conversation as well. And I appreciate both your times. Remember you can get in touch with Barbara and Phil over at Pathfinder Wealth Management. You can do so by calling them. Their number is 815-399-9806. You can also find them online pathfinderwealth.com. There's a contact button there on the website as well, plus some other great resources you can access on their website. But the most important thing is, you know, sit down with an advisor that knows your situation and can can work with you specifically on your retirement goals. And that's what Barbara and Phil do every single day with their clients. So uh, we'll wrap it up on that note. Another great edition of the Retirement Pathfinder. I want to thank you both for your time. I enjoyed it.
2: Yes, thank you, Ben. Ben.
0: Stay safe. Yes, you do the same.